Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. This week we welcome former White House COVID response coordinator under President Trump, Dr. Deborah Burks, who's written about her tumultuous experience in her new book, Silent Invasion. Mishandling of communications by the Trump White House caused significant issues on the ground and caused amazing confusion. We hear from factcheck.org's managing editor, Lori Robertson, and we end with a bright idea. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. During our guest time as White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, the press noted that she was careful to never openly criticize President Trump or his administration. But now Dr. Deborah Burks has had time to reflect and share her thoughts in her new book. Dr. Burks is a highly regarded infectious disease expert. She's the author of Silent Invasion, the untold story of the Trump administration, COVID-19, and preventing the next pandemic before it's too late, published by HarperCollins. Well, Dr. Burks, thank you for joining us. But before we get to the book, we start with the news that Vice President Kamala Harris has tested positive for COVID, and the press has noted that uh, this news is in conflict with the Biden administration trying to present a calm image about COVID. What are your thoughts about the vice president's situation and how it relates to overall to what the administration is trying to communicate? Well, I think it illustrates our, our very dilemma right now. She was vaccinated, boosted, and then reboosted um, just a month ago. And um, I am sure she will do incredibly well. Um, she has access to all of the really critical therapeutics. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why I wrote the book. Um, I could see people trying to make it seem as people who lived in rural areas that they were getting sicker because of how they voted. Um, and I think what you have realized in your, setting up your clinics across um, Connecticut, it's an access issue and our rural healthcare is very much diminished and very much similar to what I encountered in Sub-Saharan Africa 20 years ago. Um, people do just do not have access to um, top-line medical care. I applaud them expanding um, access to antivirals into more pharmacies. If you had looked at that site a week ago, you would have seen about 10 sites in Oklahoma and 10 sites in Nebraska. That is not gonna meet the needs of the people in the rural areas. Yep. Well, Dr. Burks, your book uh, certainly addresses the very tough times, and that's an understatement that we all went through starting uh, a little over two years ago, uh, and, and gives you a chance to uh, set the record straight. But I'd, I'd like to, uh, if I can, go to a 2020 New York Times report uh, that said that in mid-April of that year that you would uh, roam the halls of the White House, sometimes passing out diagrams to bolster the case that COVID had peaked. Uh, even Speaker Pelosi reacted negatively uh, after that news came out. Looking back, what did that report get right or wrong? Well, the only right part in that report um, was that I made extensive gra graphics every single day. So um, when I got back to the United States from Sub-Saharan Africa on March 2nd, um, there were no, no really comprehensive data streams coming into the federal government. Um, we couldn't see any of the laboratories. We couldn't see any of the hospitals. Um, less than 40% of the hospitals were doing any type of reporting. 
Um, so we took a while to assemble all of the data. Um, many of the private companies helped me. We called them to the White House at the beginning of March and they set up testing, finally. Um, I asked all the commercial laboratories that I knew well from my work in Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia um, to, to develop COVID tests for the average American. And within literally working around the clock within three weeks, they had tests rolling out across this country. Imagine if that had happened in January. But two of the main company that was providing tests, Abbott and Roche, they were providing me the nightly reports coming off of their instruments. And I can tell you um, what it was like to receive those reports and see Columbia Hospital reporting 42% test positivity to see NYU Langone reporting 52% um, test positivity, having run hundreds of samples. And so it was very clear that we were well into just dramatic community spread. And so what the graphics represented was an integration of cases and test positivity and hospitalizations and that particular, I wrote it every day. So every single day, every cabinet member, the cabinet members, the members of the task force, senior leaders in the White House got a summary of the pandemic and graphs. So I don't go skipping through the halls of the White <laughs> House. Um, I was actually underground um, next to the Navy mess, but I distributed those graphs every day, not skippingly, but inter through the internet, <laughs> through emails. Um, and it, in that particular, what they're referring to is um, April 11, because I asked them, what, what are you referring to? And I pulled up, of course, April 11th, um, and it said that I believed the cases had peaked in the metro area of New York, but were expanding in Boston, expanding up through Connecticut, mm -hmm. expanding in Chicago, expanding in Detroit, um, that Houston was very concerning and several major metropolitan areas that had entered exponential growth. So um, I guess if you only looked at the first bullet point um, that things were beginning to stabilize six weeks in in New York, you could have ignored the rest of the report. But I will tell you, they were all the same font size. So each of my bullet points, I don't just emphasize where things are improving. I'm, I'm very critical of my own use of data, and I make sure it's comprehensive. Well, thanks for that clarification. And there was a lot of fascination about you and your time in the White House. Some saw you as too deferential to President Trump when he was in office. And some say you may uh, still uh, reflect some of those views in your book. And you write that Donald Trump looms large, to be sure. But the scale of what occurred in 2020 was far greater than even him. Uh, and you write there was no one scapegoat. Yet polls in 2020 show a clear majority of Americans rejected Trump and his approach to COVID. You even said that more than 130,000 American lives could have been saved if Trump and the Republican governors had acted differently. I guess the question is, why won't you lay uh, this at Trump's feet in your book? Yeah, so um, in the book, I'm very clear about what went terribly wrong um, so we don't have it happen again and what went right. I, I'm just gonna roll that back with when you talk about the Republican governors because I spent a lot of time across the South in the summer surge with the Republican governors and 100% of them 
mitigated at the level that I requested. So, um, and that was the important piece to me. Um, when you met face to face, when you were around the table, when you were looking at their reality on the ground and understanding their situations, um, I didn't have any Republican governor that I went to visit um, refused to do the mitigation that we were met, recommended. And indeed, I learned from them. And that was the other piece of going out. But I guess if you're taking that from the book, not really reading the book comprehensively, because the whole point of the book was to show that I learned from people who shared my views, and I learned from people who didn't share my views. Um, and that's the problem. If we come into everything with a perception that he's Republican and I can't listen to him and I can't learn from him, or he's a Democrat and I can't listen to him and learn from him, um, we all have a tremendous problem. And that's why I wanted to make it clear that one of the most successful programs in the United States that was funded by the federal government, PEPFAR, um, went through multiple presidents, four presidents now, 10 Congresses, both with- yeah, right. Senate majority that were Republican and Senate majority that were Democrat and House majority speakers that were Democrat and House majority speakers that are Republican. And I think um, I was hoping that the book showed clearly what um, President Trump had really difficulty with. And I clearly stated these things were wrong and they hurt the pandemic, particularly related to communication. But on the other side, I think that White House allowed us to work in a way with the private sector that had never been done before. And that resulted in test therapeutics and vaccines. So, you know, you can't make this into a one dimensional, not uncomplicated plot. It's a very complicated piece. And that's why it took 500 pages to explain it because I really wanted people to understand um, what has to be fixed and what we should really learn from. Great. I'm deferential to every single president of the United States. I've worked with every single one since Jimmy Carter. You could ask them if I was respectful to them. I didn't always agree with what presidents were saying, but the presidents were elected by the people of the United States. And in my mind, that required a level of respect. I treat African presidents and Asian presidents and prime minister with that same level of respect. I find if you work with people coming from respect, you can get much more done. Yep. Well, thanks for that, uh, Dr. Burks. And also I, I'm, I'm glad for uh, your uh, talking about PEPFAR. I'm not sure enough Americans really understand what a, what a great piece of work PEPFAR has been internationally around addressing uh, HIV AIDS. You know, you, you talked about um, the experience of presidents and experience is a great teacher, we hope. And I think former uh, President Trump, who may be president again in an imaginable uh, future, had the experience both of leading the country through uh, the first pandemic in 100 years, uh, being right in the heart of things, and also the experience of being sick, right? Had, had COVID himself yeah. uh, during that phase. If he were to be back in the White House and you, you kind of uh, you know, imagine that, that future, what do you think he would do differently? What would you hope that he learned from this experience that would guide him as a president in the future in, in, in COVID or in pandemics that might come down the road? Well, I've never 
understood or spent enough time with President Trump to really answer that question for you. Um, I hope, uh, I hope as a country, um, we do three things. I hope we create a national transparent database where all community acquired infections are um, tabulated and very clear down to the most granular level by age and sex and race disaggregation that still reflects and respects HIPAA. I think there's a clear way to do that. We did that in Sub-Saharan Africa. Data transparency drives trust. And I think if every American could really see what was happening in their community, seeing how these, how these components of COVID interact from early community spread and younger age groups, gradually making it to the vulnerable community members, making it clear how many people over 70 live within their community. Um, we have 35 million Americans over 70, only 1.5 million live in nursing homes. So um, majority, 90 plus percent of our um, individuals most at risk for this disease are in communities. And so I talked about access barriers to care. If we don't use that data like we did in PEPFAR to identify the gaps, find the solutions, overcome access and barrier issues and use that data to educate people on their risk and their needs and the need for testing and masking and their needs for access to antivirals and monoclonals, we're gonna to continue to have deadly surges. And I think we're at a place where we have the tools that all Americans can survive and thrive in a time of COVID, but we are not still using the tools um, effectively. So I'm hoping that even long before 2024 and a new election that we have the systems and the agencies and our federal institutions working in a different way and data available to every American so that they can make a really clear risk assessment of what they need to do to protect themselves. I think the illustration of the vice president is very clear. People get infected despite full vaccination and boosting. If she was someone over 70 with multiple comorbidities, we know that a significant number of individuals are still hospitalized that were vaccinated and boosted. And we know that some of them succumb to COVID. We have to change this and we know how to do it, but we need, we need the will and we need the federal political will to actually make it happen. So I'm hoping all of that happens long before 2024. We're gonna continue to have these surges. And so <laughs> we cannot wait till 2024 and hope that President Trump is different if he was reelected. Yeah. You know, you really laid out a clarion call for sort of reform and the things that really should be focused in on. And you're now introducing, uh, going around the, uh, making the circuit around your new book and congratulations. Talk to us about the struggle that you're having because obviously people are looking at this through a political lens, right? Um, whether you were for the last president or against the last president, how much do you think you can get your message across because it is so important uh, we're seeing this spike again uh, in infections, in hospitalizations up four weeks in a row in New York uh, State. Uh, this is really serious stuff. And I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about the struggle you might be having of trying to get, uh, get the noise out of the room um, and have people really focus in on the seriousness of this problem and the actions that need to take place. Well, I think what, one of the things that has concerned me the most watching these last two years is 
I think as a federal civil servant, as someone who spent 29 years in the military, as someone who served every president with respect, that because I went in the White House for a year to help our COVID response, that I have been interpreted as a political human being. Um, I never campaigned. I never, I was never politically appointed by President Trump. I was retained after being appointed by President Obama. The fact that I'm having to break through that blue, red divide, um, that's going to pale how civil servants look at working at a high level with politicals. And I think um, people know that I, I had never made my politics known, even today. So, um, which was important in the military. You couldn't go around saying, you know, and there's the Hatch Act. So I took all of that very seriously. So no one could have really told um, who I was voting for, or what I was doing. I think, I think this is a very unfortunate situation. And that's why I spent a lot of time in the book. About half of the book is about what was going on in the White House. Mm-hmm. But half of the book is about what I learned being in the States, what I learned from governors and mayors, what I learned from the tribal nations, what I learned from people who were working in rural areas and on tribal nation reservations to really tackle this pandemic. Those are what American people need to see. And I think the other really amazing thing was going to over 30 universities and seeing how many university presidents and student bodies figured out how to open safely. And we're fully open um, in in 2020, in the fall of 2020. And so I think hopefully the book is a wake up call for people to actually learn what we need to do and we need to do differently. I think um, after 9-11 and the 9-11 commission changed how we gather intelligence in this country and how we share among the agencies. Um, Public health and response to pandemics don't belong to any one agency. And I think we need that same approach of really being willing to look at ourselves and see where we failed and failed the American people and fix it. Um, This is bigger than who's in the Oval Office. Certainly who's in the Oval Office can really impact communications and communications is critical. Mm -hmm. So I don't wanna make light of that. I talk about it in the book a lot. Um, The mishandling of communications by the Trump White House caused significant issues on the ground, no matter what state I went into and caused amazing confusion. Um, among the American people. And so that has to be fixed and there has to be consistency there. But we also have to have a safety net that says every American ought to be able to see the data themselves. That's what we did in Sub-Saharan Africa. All the PEPFAR data is public. All of it is on PEPFAR.gov down to the single site serving small numbers of clients because we want to make sure no matter where you live, that you can have the ability to be virally suppressed and thrive with HIV. So we want the same in this country with COVID. So Dr. Burks, uh, I hear uh, such resounding themes around communications, around access uh, to services. And you know, personally, I think uh, it was a great thing to see everybody being able to get a COVID vaccine regardless of their insurance status. When we got to that point, that was a great moment. We'll look at a bright side there. Uh, But the third uh, theme, in addition to communication and access to services, is really data, data, data. 
Um, and certainly the Center for Disease Control is working hard uh, to speed up data reporting and its processes. I think it's been well reported and you've said yourself, you were frustrated with the availability of data. I think that includes uh, CDC data. I think you know most of us were kind of surprised that CDC didn't have the kind of robust, timely, daily data feeds coming in that I just imagined that they did. And I wonder what's your advice if you were asked for it or giving it, offering it, what's your advice to CDC about what they need to do to get that input coming in from all points around the country uh, the way you were trying to do as, as you did your work in the White House? Well, first and foremost, ask people. Because when everybody, I saw this all the time in tackling pandemics around the, around the globe, people decide that no one will do it. <laughs> you know, they self-edit, they don't ask. Um, I went to all 6,000 hospitals and said, I need your daily admission data. Um, it's nice to know how many people are in the hospital, but that doesn't give us any knowledge about where this pandemic is headed, how bad it's going to get in your area, how much how much human capacity you need and how much we're going to need to support you and how many supplies I'm going to have to surge to you, including treatment. So um, we were not only collecting very little data, we were collecting the wrong data. And I think this really shows that you have to prepare for all types of pandemic, not just the pandemic you want to have. And I think for decades, CDC prepared for a pandemic based on symptoms and tracking people by symptoms. And in this 21st century, every single disease should be diagnosed laboratorily. We do that for diabetes. We do that for hypertension, for your cholesterol. We don't have people come into your clinic and say, I think I have diabetes. And you say to them, oh, what are your symptoms? Oh, I'm gonna give you meds now. No, you would get their glucose, you would get their hemoglobin A1C. And here we are deciding if people have flu or RSV or adenovirus based on symptoms. When we have the capacity to do this kind of sophisticated testing, obviously, because we were able to go from no tests to a million tests within a matter of months. So we have to and it just doesn't belong in the CDC as a country, the public, there needs to be a public private partnership around this data, that data needs to be transparent. The hospitals and clinics have the data as well as the laboratories. No one has to have a separate data submission to the CDC that's just duplicative and causes unbelievable amount of additional work. There are already, all of this information is available electronically. What we need to ensure is CMS only pays for definitive diagnosed um, diseases when it comes to infectious diseases. And then we would know who had flu and who had COVID and all of that data would be available. And so there are some simple fixes. Um, obviously that's what the nine pages at the back of the book are that really ask Congress to look at this. I think um, CDC has to get out of that mindset that there's public health and then there's health. There's just health. <laughs> and we need to use health data to tackle the pandemics that we have of obesity, opioids, HF, TB of, um, around the globe and also hypertension and diabetes in our own country and use data in real time to improve each of those pieces. People told us 
that we would not be able to change the pandemic around the world in HIV, and we did. Mm. And now you do it through data. You don't do it through thinking that this is what's happening. You actually document what's happening and who's at risk and whether you're reaching them. And that's where you find what you've done. You saw the need, you saw the access issue, but you don't stop with one clinic. You look where there's still a need. I mean, you use data to find the patients who need to be served. They don't show up in your data until you go and find them and make access available. So there, this is the kind of work that we need to do, but I can tell you after 20 years of tackling HIV, TB and um, malaria, it is possible to change pandemics. And we have the luxury of having a vaccine and effective therapeutics. So we have the tools, but we have to utilize them in a data-driven way. Well, data-driven uh, decision-making is so important, coupled with good communication. And, and in that context, let's discuss a current challenge we're seeing at our community health center, and I know other health centers around the country. Less than 40% of patients who've received the COVID vaccine uh, have returned to get a booster. Uh, and I'm wondering what your thoughts of that we can do better or differently based on your experience in, in communication and reaching out uh, to those individuals. Well, first and foremost, we have to be honest. Um, and I think there was a lack of honesty about what these vaccines can do and can't do. Um, they were never measured to prevent infection. I wanna be very clear about that. We did not test people weekly in that phase three trial to see who got mild and asymptomatic disease to cite vaccination. We didn't do that. We were only tracking in those trials symptomatic disease and the comparison for efficacy was severe disease and death. And so number one, we should have, when we put these vaccines out there is tell the American people, we don't know how well this will prevent infection. We think it's gonna be very effective against severe disease and hospitalization and death. But because we don't know about infection, don't assume because you got the vaccine that you are now invincible and Superman and protected from COVID-19 because we don't know. And I think if you had put the data up day after day and collected the information on breakthroughs, which were very evident in June of 2020 in the Southern surge, of June of 2021 in the Southern surge, if you had constantly been making the, aware, making the American people aware about the waning protection against infection, the waning protection against hospitalization, and the waning protection mm -hmm. against death, and you made that available and understandable in real time, in graphic form, county by county, state by state, community by community, people would have known and they would have seen the reason to get a booster. Now we, you know, we went out there and said, this is a miracle. It was the speed of it, but it had limitations, yet we ignored them. And now we expect the American people to wake up and realize that they weren't told the complete picture. And so when we talk about fractured trust, it's fractured trust because we're not being crystal clear to the American people about what things happening and what things aren't happening. I mean, the fact that we're coming out with data now that says 50% of the people hospitalized in, in January were fully vaccinated. 
that would have changed people's strategies for protection if they had known that. It definitely would. But now we're telling on the end of April when one of the most deadly surges has already passed through the country. These surges are predictable. This late spring surge happened last year. It was the alpha variant, highly predictable, was very much isolated to the Northeast and upper Midwest, although it did go down for a few other states. It was primarily concentrated in the upper Midwest and the Northeast, just like this late spring surge. We should be preparing right now for a summer surge and putting the data out daily with clarity to the American people about who's being hospitalized and how you're going to address those gaps. Every hospitalization and death at this point is a failure. And we need to dissect each and every one of those so that we're finding the solutions to prevent it in the summer and the winter when we know there will be surges. Well, to put it mildly, I think there's a lot to unpack and those comments you just made that will keep our uh, listeners perhaps replaying uh, that, uh, that answer about the data and the messaging uh, for, for quite a while. Uh, but Dr. Burks, I, I, I noted you mentioned the tribal nations uh, in your work all around the country uh, during your, your time and your role in the White House. And, and your book has an important chapter about the tribal nations that uh, you felt uh, really demonstrated the powerful role of community. Uh, in curbing spread, uh, despite the fact that they don't have the strongest healthcare system. Tell us more about that and, and your perspective on what the tribal nations uh, were doing that, that you thought was so powerful and effective. The tribal nations communicated continuously and presented the data. <laughs> you know, so they presented the data about test positivity and where this virus is and why they're at the highest risk. They. I mean, People talk about black and brown, Hispanic and African-Americans, and they always leave out the tribal nations. The tribal nations have the highest case fatality rate that we in any population um, in the United States. Um, and they knew that because they were collecting their own data. Um, they were given inadequate testing. Um, they are often far removed from health centers. And so what they had was a sense of community and they utilize that sense of community to protect one another and i think the same thing happened at many of the universities and schools the student body came together to really help other mm -hmm. students focused on mental health and really ensured um, that students could survive um, because they had a different set of issues but i that's what i want people to take from the book is we have solutions in this country that really show how to communicate. And I think the other piece of, that was really important that we haven't done is the behavioral research to understand um, vaccine hesitancy. Um, it's very frustrating to me that we collect data on things and then we don't do anything to change the number. And just year after year, we say flu vaccine uptake is less than 50%. It's worse among black and Hispanic populations and we did nothing. So, well, we got to collect data and fix things. Well, thank you, Dr. Burks. And COVID is an evolving story. Your book is an important part of the history. And thank you for your decades of service, not only in the PrepFAR, HIV, AIDS world, but also with COVID. And thanks to our audience for joining us. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up for our email at chcradio.com. Again, thank you, Dr. Burks. 
Thank you. And I really, I appreciate. So I looked into everything that you were doing, um, starting with one becoming 200. You don't do that unless you're data driven and you saw a need and you found a solution. And this is what we need all the way across the country. Well, so thank great. you. Good. Thank and you, congratulations. Dr. Thank you for thank joining you so us. Much. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? The percentage of Americans without health insurance went down from 2020 to 2021. That's the latest information from the National Health Interview Survey. The estimates, which are early release figures subject to some final editing and weighting, are that 8.9% of the U.S. population did not have health insurance at the time they were interviewed in the third quarter of 2021. That's down from 9.7% in the third quarter of 2020 and 10.3% in the fourth quarter of 2020. It's a decrease of 1.4 percentage points from the last quarter of Donald Trump's presidency to the third quarter of Joe Biden's presidency. The latest report from the National Health Interview Survey doesn't give estimates for the number of the uninsured as opposed to the percentage. Its report for the first six months of 2021 had estimated the number of the uninsured dropped by about 500,000 people in the first six months of 2021 compared with 2020. We'll have to wait for the NHIS's full year estimates for updated figures. Data for the NHIS are collected by the Census Bureau, which separately issues annual reports on the number lacking health insurance for the entire year. The report for 2021 is not expected until this coming fall. In 2021, 11.3 million people were enrolled in Affordable Care Act exchange plans through healthcare.gov and state-run marketplaces. In this year's open enrollment period, 14.5 million people were enrolled in plans for 2022, with 3 million of them being new consumers, according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. About 79 million Americans were enrolled in Medicaid, according to the latest figures from last fall. Employer-based insurance remains the primary source of insurance for Americans, with nearly half of the population on work-based health coverage as of 2019. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. For several decades, the CDC has been screening new mothers in the postnatal period for issues that could signal a threat to the child's ability to thrive. The surveillance tool, the Pregnancy Risk Assessment Monitoring System, or PRAMS as it's known, is a population-based surveillance tool designed to identify groups of women and infants at higher risk for future health problems. 
Dr. Craig Garfield, founder of the Family and Child Health Innovations Program at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, thought they were leaving out an important part of the equation, the dads. The CDC actually approached us because they have had for 35 years a survey of mothers in the perinatal period that gives us really good data on public health and the public health of mothers as they transition into motherhood. And they started to get back comments within the survey saying, why is the only question that you ask me about my partner is whether he hit, kick, beat, or slap me during pregnancy? There's so many things that he did that helped me get through this pregnancy, and you don't ask about any of those. Dr. Garfield, a researcher and pediatrician at Northwestern University, partnered with the CDC and the Georgia Department of Health to pilot the deployment of a new surveillance tool, PRAMS for Dads, which turns out to be a very effective screening tool for broader public health issues as well. We ask questions about the dad's physical health, dad's mental health, access to health care, dad's use of family leave, Dad's involvement with the baby, ideas around breastfeeding, because we know from a pediatric perspective that the chances of mom successfully breastfeeding have a lot to do with if dad is supportive of that as well. And then things like, you know, what are the risky behaviors that dads might, might be involved in that we need to know from a public health perspective, smoking, drinking, having a gun, those sort of questions. Dr. Garfield says identifying issues such as obesity, binge drinking, or smoking in a father at the time of birth is an excellent time to empower the new father to address those issues impacting not only his health, but the health of mother and baby as well. And this is a time when they are more motivated to improve health for their child. As a pediatrician, I work with a lot of fathers and the fathers I work with all are looking at the time of birth to really be the best kind of father they can be. And a lot of that has to do with being able to, to maintain their own health so that they are there um, when their child gets older and they can be there to be with them. And what used to be thought of simply to provide for them financially really is no longer acceptable to, to many of the fathers. They want to be there and be involved in a different way than maybe their father or their grandfather was. Since launching the pilot PRAMS for Dads, Dr. Garfield's team and the CDC have expanded the program, partnering with several other states, including Ohio and Massachusetts. An inexpensive, easily deployed surveillance tool screening new dads for health concerns that could impact not only their newborn's future health, but their own health as well and providing a reliable public health data set for individuals, families, clinicians, and population health as well. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.